author of the Golden Age of Basketball, the NBA in the decade of the 80s, and host of this podcast. Please visit my website, thegoldenagebasketball.com, for all things NBA 80s, links to my books, digital books for your iPad or iPhone, purchase pictures of your favorite old school players, watch videos, read my blog, listen to archive podcasts, or listen to all the archives right here on Blog Talk Radio. If you missed part one of the 1984-85 NBA season, The Revenge of the Lakers, we left off at game four of the NBA World Championship Series between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Boston Celtics at the Forum. Won by the Celtics with a shot at the buzzer from Dennis Johnson, which deadlocked the series at two games apiece as it had just a year earlier. This season, because of the NBA's brand new 2-3-2 Finals format, the pivotal Game 5 would once again be held at the Fabulous Forum versus the Boston Garden, home of the team with the best record that year, the Celtics. The mood at the Forum for Game 5 was a loosely blended cocktail of nervous anticipation, high anxiety, and blind faith for Laker fans. They could recite in their sleep the overwhelming odds which favored the winner of Game 5 as eventual NBA champion. Ten out of the last 15 years it had played out that way. But millions of Angelinos were also well-versed on the two occasions where their Lakers led the hated Celtics 3-2 in the finals and lost. First in 1962, then again in 1969, the painful memory of the Game 7 celebratory balloons stuck in the form rafters while Bill Russell once again ran off the floor clutching the game ball and the title. And of course the wounds were still festering from just 12 months ago when the brutal McHale clothesline of Kurt Rambis in Game 4 turned the game and a potential Laker 3-1 series lead on its head and into a 7th game Boston Garden party. These lowlights would be immortalized on film for future Laker fans, pungent whiffs of red Orbach cigars slowly seeping out of the archival tapes and YouTube clips on 2Q. Like the bully that mercilessly took your lunch money each day, Boston had thoroughly crushed the collective psyche of Laker Nation for two decades. A recurring nightmare in green that was passed down through the generations from grandfather to father to son, their wise mothers and daughters. The emotional scars left by the previous eight finals defeat tempered the palpable excitement sweeping through the corridors of the forum prior to the players lining up for Game 5. The Celtic organization wearing that cool confidence bordering on arrogance proudly on their chest, a byproduct of 15 world championships and an 8 to nothing series lead on the Lakers all time. Why the Lakers' historical narrative rested squarely on the shoulders of the three men who spent every minute of the last 12 months planning for this very moment. Pat Riley and Magic Johnson burned with an unparalleled competitive fire that turned this championship series into a crusade to erase, as Laker owner Jerry Buss would call it, the most odious sentence in the English language, that the Lakers have never beaten the Celtics. The key to victory, however, would hinge on the performance of the man they called the captain, a seven-foot-two living legend, now the NBA's all-time leading scorer with six MVP awards and three NBA championships in his 16th season, the most unique player in the history of the league with only one glaring omission on his resume, a championship series victory over Boston. While Abdul-Jabbar had been nothing short of magnificent in the past three games, the team would once again lean on his zen-like composure under pressure and that unstoppable skyhook. And as he had done time and time again, the man they called the captain rose too and above the challenge. Game 5 was close for a quarter, and then the Lakers turned to their youngest gun, James Worthy, who triggered the Laker fast break and delighted the home crowd with 19 points in the first half to propel the home team to a 13-point halftime lead. Boston remained sluggish in the third quarter, falling behind by as much as 17 points when Casey Jones pulled a trick out of the old Red Orbach archives, 
got himself thrown out of the game by walking halfway onto the court to bully the refs with eight minutes left in the third. It actually worked for a while as Boston rallied and clawed back below double digits and crept to within four points of the lead in the fourth. But Kareem would answer every Celtic run with one skyhook dagger after another, making 16 of 28 shots for 36 points, adding seven rebounds, seven assists, and three blocks in a 121-11 victory. Worthy kept his pedal to the medal with 33 points on 13 of 17 from the field, while Magic finished with 26 points, 17 dimes, and six boards, including some key fourth-quarter buckets. The unsung hero of Game 5 was a somewhat forgotten man in the series, forward Kurt Rambis, who stirred up the home crowd with hustle, muscle, quickness on defense, seven points, two steal, a block shot, and nine huge rebounds. Larry Bird's 22nd half points would not be enough as the Celtics dug themselves too big a hole even for the MVP to will his team out of this time around. In the glorious 38-year history of the Boston Celtics up to 1985, they had won 15 of 16 championship series. They lost Game 7 to Bob Pettit and the St. Louis Hawks on the road in 1957, but they maintained remarkable invincibility at home. The Celtics had never been eliminated from a championship series on the storied parquet floor of Boston Garden. They had lost only two elimination games at home. Game 7 of the 1973 Eastern Conference Finals to my idol, Walt Frazier, Willis Reed, and the New York Knicks, and then nine years later to Julius Irving in Philadelphia in the 1982 Eastern Conference Finals. There are many explanations for this home dominance. The fanatical intimidation of the crowd, who sat right on top of the players and refs, in one of the smallest remaining buildings in the NBA. The legendary dead spots in the parquet floor, which did really weird things to a basketball. The ghosts of Celtics past. The leprechaun. Red Orbach's bully legacy. Absence of heat in the visitors' locker rooms or hot water in the visiting team showers. The ringing of fire alarms at the visiting team hotel at 3 a.m. These are all true stories. The 97-degree heat game 5 in 1984. But whatever the case, the Garden was a glorious shrine to winning, a religious experience for Celtic fans and the bowels of hell for the visitors. This Laker team put history in their rearview mirror and took the floor for Game 6 with the experience of having won in this building twice in their last six championship games played at Boston Garden. They had answered the bell after Memorial Day Massacre of Game 1 and absorbed the gut punch of DJ's Game 4 buzzer beater but they had held home court in Game 5 and now needed to whack Boston squarely in the mouth early and often in this potential closeout game. Kareem was the MVP up to this point in the series, but Magic Johnson was the man with the ball in his hands. He was still the maestro, the orchestrator of the greatest fast break in modern NBA history, and his ability to control tempo would determine the outcome of this game. In contrast to just 12 months ago, Magic, not Bird, was now the shark, and the Celtics were flailing in the water, bleeding, and ready for the kill. There would be no greater redemption for the Magic Man than knocking Bird and Boston to the parquet floor for good in front of their own fans. The Lakers to a man would agree with the rest of the free world that they had a slim to less than zero chance of winning a game seven in Boston. So they would go all in on the next 48 minutes. Failure was not an option. Game six became a composite of a number of individual skirmishes throughout the game. Magic versus DJ, Bird versus Cooper and Worthy, Kareem dueling the Chief, and then McHale taking on the entire Laker front line and the kitchen sink that Riley would throw at him. The teams essentially traded baskets for the first 24 minutes of the game, which began as an air ball swapping, turnover related brick fest, 
a testament to the physical and mental fatigue that had reached its apex, reflecting the enormous gravity of the moment. Los Angeles led by two after one period, and by halftime there had been 18 ties already on the way to a 55-all deadlock. Kevin McHale and James Worthy once again led their teams in scoring at the half with 21 and 15 points respectively. In contrast to Game 5, Larry Bird came out in the first half aggressively firing but constantly missing from the perimeter, scoring the bulk of his points in the paint. The weakness of Boston's bench began to take its toll as L.A. was finally able to get a sliver of separation in the third quarter, but not by pushing the ball as expected, but by beating the Celtics at their own slow time game, executing beautifully in their half-court sets. Boston packed the middle in the third quarter to smother Kareem and gave open looks to Michael Cooper, James Worthy, and Byron Scott who had been underwhelming up to this point, shooting only 36% in the series, but finally connecting on four big jumpers in the third to help the Lakers open an 82-73 lead heading into the last 12 minutes, even as Magic sat for five minutes in the third with his fourth ball. The Celtics starters looked a step slow on offense, settling for jump shots which missed, compounding the troubles by failing to crash the offensive glass with the force of earlier games and especially with the gusto of last year's finals. Back in L.A., the living Laker legends of the 60s were no doubt at home, drenched in sweat for those final 12 minutes, desperately clutching some holy figurine, spiritual talisman, or, if your Laker general manager Jerry West, the tortured poster child of those 60s Lakers bridesmaids, who refused to even make the trip to Boston, was somewhere wallowing in his own indescribable hell, waiting for the worst to happen. West was rumored to be somewhere back in Los Angeles, driving up and down some remote stretch of the Pacific Coast Highway, listening to Chick Hearn in most certain agony. Elgin Baylor and Wilt Chamberlain, along with the remaining members of those 60s squads, Hot Rod Hundley, Tommy Hawkins, and Frank Selby, who missed a jumper at the end of regulation versus the Celtics in the 62 championship, which became the albatross that hung around this franchise's neck for two decades, all waited out those last 40 minutes of real time in what probably seemed like a lifetime. They had been so close to the mountaintop, only to be shoved off the cliff by Russell and company, time and time again. West, whose friends say was still haunted by Celtic Green to this day, had taken over the reins of this franchise, ironically, from Bill Sharman, a former Celtic, and last year's collapse to yet another incarnation of this Celtic franchise made this championship series almost too much to bear for the man known as The Logo. The Laker lead wavered from 10 to 4 points throughout a hotly contested fourth quarter, but the tipping point was Kevin McHale's six fouls, six foul with five minutes and change left in the game. McHale had carried the entire Celtic offense in his back pocket in this series and had another simply magnificent evening with 32 points on 11 for 18 shooting, 16 rebounds and two blocks. The air was completely let out of the building as he headed to the bench and, to McHale's credit, he politely complimented the referees for an outstanding job of officiating a very difficult series and just a remarkable display of sportsmanship in his dreams. McHale ripped officials Earl Straub and Hugh Evans each a new asshole for about five minutes before accepting his fate in the pine. But in Kevin McHale, yet another certifiable Celtic legend was born, and that was just simply frightening news for the rest of the league. And let's also take a moment to give props to the Boston Garden faithful. They're raining down of booze from the ceiling to the floor seats for every single one of those 27 foul calls that went against their heroes in the Church of Bird. That night was deafening. I'm not even sure if officials Earl Strom and Hugh Evans were ever heard from again. 
but love him or hate him, they were the gold standard of fans in the decade. And fans around the rest of the country mostly loved to hate him. But with Mikhail on the pine, Los Angeles cruised to a 111-100 victory, the first closeout game in the championship series ever by a visiting team on the parquet floor. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the unanimous choice of finals MVP, at age 35 the oldest player ever to win the award, 14 years after his first finals MVP in 1971 with the Bucks. The captain averaged 25.7 points on 60% shooting, 9.2 rebounds, and 5 assists in the 6 games, while James Worthy established himself as a major primetime player. Big game James averaged 23 points a game, shooting a blistering 56% from the field, and played superb tag team defense with Michael Cooper on Larry Bird. Magic Johnson, for the first time in his three championship wins, didn't win MVP, but he won the MSP, Most Satisfied Player. He couldn't have written a script any better. Redemption on the parquet floor, clipping Bird's wings in his own nest. Magic averaged 18 points, 6.8 rebounds, and 14 assists in six games breaking his own NBA Finals records for dimes, set just 12 months ago. But most satisfying was his grace under pressure, making the clutch plays in games 5 and 6 whenever Boston made a run. Asked by CBS's Brett Musburger, what was the difference in the Lakers between last year's loss and this year's victory? And Magic was quick to reply, we just didn't make the mistakes. Michael Cooper's Swiss Army knife impact on this series cannot be understated. Whether he hit timely perimeter jump stops, stuck the bird like a 170-pound stick of crazy glue, took a charge from a player 50 pounds heavier, or took over the ball-handling duties to give Magic critical minutes on the bench for foul trouble or just to get a blow, Cooper had his fingerprints all over this championship. He embodied every quality of the perfect teammate, fearless, self-depreciating, self-sacrificing, and uber-competitive. He suffered a bone bruise after bumping knees with McHale in the third quarter and was carried off to the locker room by two teammates. You knew he was coming back. If they had to cut his leg off, he would have played on just one. Along with Mitch Kupchak, he gave the Lakers a nastiness they desperately needed. Kevin McHale led the Celtics with 26 points and 10 rebounds per game. Larry Bird averaged 25 points per game, 8.8 rebounds, and 5 assists, numbers that would merit a lifetime contract extension for a mere mortal but his 45% shooting from the field in the series was a serious problem for the Celtics. Shots he usually made in his sleep just weren't falling, and while he tried to punish the Lakers underneath, that just played right into L.A.'s hands. Credit Michael Cooper and James Worthy for executing Pat Riley's defensive game plan to perfection, but Bird may have suffered the lingering effects of an injury to the index finger of his shooting hand during the conference final versus the 76ers. The story of how he injured that finger remained largely untold. Bird and a few friends were involved in a Philadelphia bar fight between games one and two of the conference finals. Chaos ensued, legal people got involved, and the victims in the story just disappeared. Remember kids, this was before Twitter, cell phone cameras, and TMZ reported every breath an athlete or a celebrity took. The scandal of the NBA's best player in a barroom brawl, throwing punches and getting sued, was not a story CBS wanted to run in its halftime report of the highest rated championship series in its history. Bird publicly said nothing, ever, to anyone, stiffened his lift and played on. The Lakers, however, wanted no parts of Bird giving him the finger as an excuse. Nothing would tarnish the greatest achievement in Laker franchise history. As Bird walked dejectedly to the bench to a huge ovation by the Garden Faithful with seconds left in Game 6, 
CBS analyst Tommy Heinsohn said the first words out of Bird's mouth in the locker room would be, I played terrible. Dennis Johnson at age 30 just finally ran out of gas, shadowing a 25-year-old Magic Johnson for six games while trying to create offense for himself and his teammates. DJ left all players in minutes per game in the championship series, averaging 41 in the six games. He missed his first six shots in game six and never found an offensive rhythm, scoring 11 points on 3 of 15 shooting with only four assists. The chief, Robert Parrish, also left it all on the floor as he did a full 180 from the game one Olympic sprinter who left Kareem in his fumes before Abdul-Jabbar hit the reset button and proceeded to skyhook him into oblivion over the next five games. A clearly exhausted Parrish shot just 5 of 14 in Game 6. He averaged 17 points, but his 9 rebound a game average was a full 2 rebounds less than a year ago. Los Angeles had 3 players off the bench who played in 6 games and each played 15 or close to 15 minutes a game. Bob McAdoo at 19 minutes a game, Cooper with 25 minutes a game, and the unheralded Mitch Kupchak who averages 14 minutes a game. The Celtics starters have been Ironmen all season, as Cedric Maxwell, a major player in last year's final, but a ghost in 1985, never fully recovered from midseason knee surgery, and played just 54 minutes in the championship series versus 241 minutes in 1984. Although Kevin McHale would excel in his new starting role and have a magnificent playoff run, he left a Grand Canyon-sized hole in their bench. Boston had only six players who played in all six games in the 1985 Finals, and only one that averaged 15 minutes or more off the bench, Scott Wedman. Wedman's 11 points per game as Boston's leading bench scorer was misleading as well. After blistering the Nets with 26 points and a perfect 11 from 11 from the field in Game 1, he scored a total of 30 over the next five games for a six-point average. That disadvantage covered with the fact that guards DJ and Danny Ainge couldn't have picked a worse day to lose complete side of the basket than in an elimination game doomed Boston. The Lakers all helped out and Bird McHale and dared Boston's backcourt to beat him from the perimeter, and they would oblige by missing 25 of 31 combined shot attempts that night. Some general notes on the 85 finals, the most stark contrast being the near-complete absence of the three-point shots, and ladies and gentlemen, in the 80s, championships were still the one in the paint. The Celtics in 1984 finals had nine total three-point makes and 23 total attempts in the seven-game series. They followed that up in the 85 finals with 13 made three-pointers from a whopping 34 total attempts in six games. That's an average of 1.6 three-pointers made on 4.6 attempts per game over 13 games in two championship series. The Lakers were also MIA, missing in action from behind the arc. In the 84 finals, the Purple and Gold shot 6 for 18 from three-point land in seven games, followed by 8 for 23 in the 85 finals, totaling 14 of 41 threes over 13 games, which is basically the first quarter in today's NBA. An average of 1.7 makes for the Lakers on 3.1 attempts per game in the two seasons. So the two teams combined blistered the Nets for 2.7 made three-pointers a game on seven combined attempts per game in those 13 games between two championship series, which is inconceivable, which is why I pull my hair out because you just can't compare errors. The finals in 85 was a physical theory, uh, physical series, though. Hand-checking was still legal, bump and grind in the paint the norm, and hard files the rule, not the exception, 
Also of importance, there were still only two officials on the court. The NBA wouldn't start using three until 1988, which left a ton of excessive contact gone unpunished by a whistle. CBS announcer Dick Stockton in his season sign-off after the finals praised the NBA's growth over the last five seasons, saying the NBA had previously been, quote, a whipping boy for everything wrong with professional sports. He cited the league's rising attendance and record-viewing audience this season and gave players all the credit for riding the ship. Stockton also took a glance into the future, welcoming Georgetown center Patrick Ewing to the party as the consensus first prize in the NBA's inaugural draft lottery. So the golden series of the golden age of basketball was now tied at one championship apiece, and Magic Johnson would indeed have his parade down Figueroa Boulevard in Los Angeles, lifting the gold ball, smiling his face back as wide as the Pacific Ocean again, his reputation repaired yet once again, and the most satisfying of all for the Magic Man was his three championship ring to two lead on his arch rival Larry Bird that once again put them eye to eye for bragging rights as the game's best player, where Magic rightfully belonged. As for the 35-year-old Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he could once again make claim as the greatest player that ever lived in a career spanning from Power Memorial High in New York to MVP of three NCAA championships with UCLA Bruins, the linchpin of a dominant Milwaukee Bucks team in the 70s, and now three titles with the Los Angeles Lakers. Kareem, a paragon of excellence, a model of the physical, mental preparation, cast iron will, and perseverance that both inspired his millions of fans, and for the first time, maybe muting his thousands of critics. The six-time NBA MVP and now two-times finals MVP, and remember kids, he was robbed of a third finals MVP in 1980, by the league and CBS, also flashed a magic-like incandescent smile in the champagne-drenched visitor's locker room in Boston Garden, checking that rare empty box in his career as resume, a title versus Boston, and on the parquet floor to boot. And if you watch the sign-off on the celebration on YouTube, catch assistant coach Bill Burka yelling at the top of his lungs, on the parquet floor, on the parquet floor on the parquet floor. But no one, however, would receive a larger rate of return on this championship than Laker coach Pat Riley. His metamorphosis from journeyman player to beach bum to radio sidekick to player-friendly assistant coach to players coach to head coach to championship coach would now add Celtic Slayer coach to his resume. And that kid changed his personality and his life fast. His single-minded 12-month, silk-shirt-soaked, detailed-to-the-last-second-of-the-last-game mission to beat Boston led this morphing into basketball's version of Aristotle meets Genghis Khan with a healthy portion of James Bond thrown in. His players would argue that this metamorphosis was not necessarily a good thing, as he would slowly distance himself from his team with his demands on them would push them as close to a breaking point as humanly possible over the next five seasons. He began a 30-year period of developing, developing the Pat Riley philosophy of basketball, coining Riley-isms like there are only two outcomes in basketball, winning and misery, painting the media, family members, and outsiders in general as peripheral opponents, describing the disease of more as a selfishness within individual players, more money, more touches, more publicity, that destroys team chemistry. There'd be a million Rileyisms coming, 
which would draw the ire of rival coaches, players, media, who would find him increasingly insufferable over the next five years and over the next quarter century, but not to mention the significant angst he would trigger within the walls of the Laker offices and locker room over the next half decade. But Riley the coach never let Riley the brand, Riley the matinee idol, get in the way of winning basketball games. His celebrity was skyrocketed that summer of 1985 in a city that worshipped celebrity, not only in the sports world, but in the Hollywood community at large. He was officially A-listed, and Riley would diligently cultivate the image he created from scratch and became the first professional sports coach to be his own brand, his own matinee idol. He became the caretaker of Showtime as much as basketball's soulmate Magic Johnson was the orchestrator, perfectly projecting Jerry Buss's image of glitter, glamour, and glory on the fabulous forum floor. So the 1984-85 Los Angeles Lakers pushed back with force against the odds, the critics, the haters, and the doubters. So this champagne bath in the visitor's locker room in historic Boston Garden was certainly a better vintage than in 1980 or 82. They would make Laker history as the Ghostbusters, the Leprechaun Killers, the fire extinguishers of those god-awful Red Orbach cigars, the visiting princes of the parquet. Los Angeles had gone when no team had gone before, and to take a phrase from one of Kareem's books, stood on the shoulders of a 35-year-old giant to get there. For me, it was by far the greatest championship in their history. It, it changed the tenure. It changed the whole narrative of the 80s and the reputations of everybody involved with that organization, and it set the table for all the rest of the championships to follow. As we reached the midpoint of the decade, the Lakers' combination of the sky hook and a no-look served as a daunting obstacle to the rest of the NBA. They had slayed the green monster, and they would be thirsty for more. But the Laker franchise knew the Celtics would lick their rooms and regroup, and fully expected them to return to the finals for the rubber match. The emergence of Kevin McHale as option 1A for Boston behind Larry Bird allowed the Celtics to look for quality reinforcements to bolster their bench next season. The search would leave them 3,000 miles west to Southern California, where once-dominant redhead languished in the purgatory known as the Los Angeles Clipper organization. His resurrection would drive the narrative of the 1986 NBA season. And to borrow a phrase from the political arena in the 80s, the Lakers and Celtics would begin an arms race for supremacy that would continue to the end of the decade, while the NBA, and certainly us fans, would continue to thrive and enjoy the results. Thanks for tuning in, and look forward to seeing everybody for the 1985 first NBA lottery featuring Patrick Ewing and the 1986 Boston Celtics Sweet 16. Till then, I'm Stephen Ray Roseboro. Hope you enjoyed it. God bless and have a good night.